Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My sermon this morning is on Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, even though we have John's version in our liturgy today. (laughs) Um, Sorry about that, a little mix-up. But if you have a Bible or a phone, you can look up Matthew chapter 21, uh, the first 11 verses, or you can just follow, listen, just listen. Uh, Dramatic irony uh, is a literary device that goes all the way back to the old Greek tragedies. It's when the audience or the reader knows something that a character or characters in the story do not. Dramatic irony cranks up the tension in the story, Uh, but it also often reveals something to us. One classic example of dramatic irony is Shakespeare's Macbeth. Uh, The play's audience knows that the ambitious General Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, are planning to assassinate the Scottish king, Duncan but the king himself does not know it. And Shakespeare uses the king's ignorance to increase the tension in the story. The king loudly professes his complete confidence in Macbeth. He says, he was a gentleman on whom I built an absolute trust. The incongruity between what the king is saying and what we know to be the truth makes us wince. Shakespeare is drawing out the suspense, yes. But he's also showing us the naivety of the king, and he's highlighting the wickedness of what Macbeth is planning. Well, there's a great deal of dramatic irony in Matthew's telling of the triumphal entry, and it carries right through the story of Christ's passion, which we just heard read for us. If the irony in Macbeth was that a king doesn't know that he is about to die. The irony in the gospel is that the king, Jesus, does know it. And if we've been following along in the story, we should know it too. But it's the crowds who do not understand. It's the week before the Passover, and Jerusalem is rapidly filling up with pilgrims. People from all over the land are streaming into the holy city for the festivities Some estimates suggest there may have been as many as two and a half million people in the city. We heard last week in the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead that Jesus knew things were pretty testy for him in Jerusalem. The last time he had been there, his opponents had tried to stone him. But he comes back anyway, first to raise Lazarus in the village of Bethany nearby, But now, instead of sneaking off back to Galilee, which would have been the safer choice, he boldly enters the city, just as it's ramping up to the Passover. And what an entrance he makes. Jesus has spent most of the last three years telling people not to spread the word about who he is. He has often warned people who he's just healed not to tell anyone about it. He has even told demons to keep quiet about his true identity. 
But now something has changed. Now he rides into the city in full view of the crowds, knowing what kind of a stir his entrance will make. Until now, he has avoided stirring up the people this way. When, for instance, in John 6, the people wanted to make him king by force, he slipped away quietly into the wilderness. But now he is making a bold new move. He's making a play. He is entering the city the way a victorious king would, and he is accepting the adoration of the crowds. And the people who had wondered when he would eventually step up this revolution to the next level are beside themselves with excitement. They understand what Jesus' actions are implying, and they respond in kind. They lay their cloaks down in the road in front of him. That's what you do for a king. They wave palm branches. That's what the people had done for Simon Maccabeus after his victory over their Greek oppressors a couple of hundred years before. To understand what the people are calling out, we need to look at Psalm 118, which we read this morning as part of our Liturgy of the Palms. It's a pilgrimage psalm, which the people would probably already have been singing as they came up to the city for the festival. The psalm describes how Israel was surrounded by its enemies who threatened its very life, only to be saved by the servant of the Lord. It's a psalm of the victory of the Lord on behalf of his people, a psalm in which the gate of the holy city is opened so that the righteous one may enter. Jesus is acting out this psalm in front of them, and they are not slow to pick up on the imagery. They call Jesus the son of David, the Messiah. They're saying, this is the descendant of David who was promised to us. This is the righteous one the psalm is talking about. He is the one who will save us from our oppressors. Hosanna, they cry. It means save us. It's from verse 25 of the psalm. They're saying, save us from our enemies, O son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they sing. That's from Psalm 118 too, in verse 26. This is the one who comes in Yahweh's name, God's representative, come to save them from their oppressors. And Jesus does not tell them to be quiet. He doesn't sneak off down an alley and disappear. He rides quietly on, accepting their praises, communicating more plainly than he could have if he had said it in words, that he is indeed the son of David, and that he has indeed come to save God's people from their enemies. Whatever Jesus' ministry had been and meant until now, now it takes an irreversible turn. Jesus has cast the die. He has crossed the Rubicon. And there's no going back. And Matthew tells us the whole city is shaken. But there's another detail here, one that seems to escape the notice of the crowds. And yet it's the only detail that we're told that Jesus himself has deliberately planned. He's riding not on a war horse, 
like a mighty general or victorious king would have done, but on a donkey. It's a beast of burden. And what's more, it's a colt, a humble animal, a lowly animal. The evangelist Matthew explains to us exactly why Jesus had chosen to ride a donkey's colt. It was to fulfill the scripture, he says, from Zechariah chapter 9. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 prophesies calamity on Israel's enemies and predicts that Jerusalem's promised king will be a king of peace, not war, a lowly and gentle king riding on a donkey's colt. It's an incongruous image, and it doesn't make perfect sense in the context of Zechariah chapter 9, I don't think. How will the Messiah be a man of peace and yet conquer the enemies of Israel? Why does the victorious king ride into the city of David on such a simple and lowly animal? And yet this is the image that Jesus chooses to pick up on and deliberately act out for them, sending his disciples ahead of him to arrange for the donkey's colt to be ready. There's no suggestion in Matthew's telling that the people pick up on this detail. (laughs) They're too swept up in the excitement that Jesus is finally making his play, that he is claiming publicly to be the Messiah. This is the dramatic irony of the triumphal entry. Jesus is indeed making a public claim to the kingship of Israel. But his claim is by means of lowliness, in great humility, without arms or violence, without demagoguery or propaganda. Jesus is flashing the signals of kingship. And yet he is riding not to storm the Roman strongholds, but to his own death. He is indeed the king, but this king is different from all other kings. And the people, blinded by their excitement and swept up in their messianic fervor, miss it completely. But the irony, too, is that what they're saying is exactly right. Jesus is indeed the son of David. He is the righteous one the psalm describes. And he will indeed save them from their enemies. He is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. We can sing these same praises today without changing a word. We've done it already this morning. And we're about to do it again because these are the very words we say every week in the Holy Eucharist. Well, usually we sing them. (laughs) Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. For in the Eucharist, We acclaim and welcome the one who bears God's holy name, the one who comes to us in the bread and the wine. I said that Matthew's telling of the triumphal entry and of Jesus' passion is full of dramatic irony, and that's true. (laughs) But I want to say more. It's not just that the evangelist Matthew is using a clever literary technique here to heighten the drama of the story to make a few good points. I think Matthew is just noticing, picking up on, the fact that there simply is a great irony to the events of these chapters. 
a great cosmic irony that is itself right at the heart of our faith. In only a few days, Pilate will ask Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus will answer simply, you have said so. Pilate's soldiers will mock Jesus. They will put a purple robe on him and press a crown of thorns into his scalp. And they will sarcastically bow before him and then spit in his face. And yet in this grotesque image, there is deep irony. For this broken down man with blood seeping through the purple cloth and blood trickling down his face from the crown of thorns on his head is indeed the king of all kings, the ruler of all the world. He is dressed exactly as he should be. Later, in an effort to free Jesus and to assuage his guilty conscience, Pilate will offer to free one prisoner. Which one do you want me to release to you, he will ask. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Barabbas was a violent insurrectionist. His name means son of Abbas or son of a father. He stands next to Jesus, who addresses God as Abba, his father. One, the son of Abbas, believes in taking up swords and storming gates. The other, the son of Abba, has told his followers to put away their swords and has ridden into the city to his own suffering and death on a donkey, a humble king of peace. Later still, in an odd and ambivalent gesture, Pilate will make a sign to go above Jesus' cross, the king of the Jews. The Jews themselves object, but Pilate insists, what I have written, I have written. So even as Jesus hangs there dying and those gathered around hurl insults at him, the stark truth of his true identity hangs above him in plain letters. How could a king die such a death? And yet he did. Irony is at the heart of Palm Sunday and of the passion of our Lord. The pilgrims in Jerusalem delighted to sing the praises of a king they themselves would shortly turn around and condemn to death. And yet their fickle praises were nonetheless true, true beyond their understanding. The great king of kings entered the holy city to claim the kingship, not as a mighty warrior to overthrow temporal powers, but as a gentle and lowly king to suffer, and to die. John tells us, in the version of the triumphal entry we did read this morning, that at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The meaning of these events would be revealed to the disciples later by the Holy Spirit, as they meditated on them. 
All throughout Jesus' suffering and death, the truth of who he was had been plain for anyone with eyes to see. Our king conquers not through military might, but through suffering and death. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What kind of kingship is this? Here's how the priest and scholar Wesley Hill puts it. It's a kingship of self-surrender rather than conventional force. It's a kingship of silence rather than propaganda. It's a kingship of acquiescence rather than violence and coercion. It's a kingship of humiliation rather than glory and honor. And it is a kingship that culminates in death rather than longevity and prosperity. But this is the kingship God has chosen for himself, the kingship by which he rescues the world. If you choose to follow Jesus, if you choose to make him your king, you are choosing the same path. You too are choosing the way of weakness, of humiliation, of suffering and death. You are not choosing human might and glory, but surrender. But if we suffer with Christ, we will also be raised with Christ. If we descend with Christ into death, we will also ascend with him to eternal life. Today, we too are pilgrims to Zion, and we too watch our king enter the holy city. But we are not like those crowds of old. We can see our king for who he really is. And with rich irony, we can praise him with the same words they used long ago. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.